The Hurling Podcast is brought to you by the Enniscorthy Credit Union, where you can join and apply for a loan on the same day. With great interest rates and special rates for car loans, green car loans and education loans. Check out their website at enniscorthycu.ie. The Enniscorthy Credit Union. Local, loyal and lending. Loans are subject to approval. Terms and conditions apply. If you do not meet the repayments on your loan, your account will go into arrears. This may affect your credit rating, which may limit your ability to access credit in the future. Enniscorthy Credit Union Limited is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. If I told you what I put them lads through, you wouldn't believe it. Hurling has to be the most difficult, eye-hurting sport I've ever witnessed. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been described as the bridesmaids of Hurling, but today we got married. Oh, there's no rules. This guy just grabbed the ball, threw it up in the air, and then hit it. But, for the party, I'd like to thank you, the people of Wexford, who stuck with us through taking place. I'm telling you categorically that without Nee Fitzpatrick in there, Wexford would have no All-Ireland in 96. Those were the words of Lean Griffin. Hello and welcome to the Hurling Podcast. Nee Fitzpatrick is our guest today, and just in case you don't know, Neve was the sports psychologist for the Wexford Hurlers in 96. This is a chat that I've been looking forward to for a while, and it didn't disappoint. They were ahead of their time in 96, weren't they, Ben? Very few doing the same thing at the time, and now, now it seems to be the norm that most teams would have. Some sort of a psychologist. Yeah, and even just the, the working relationship between Neve and Liam comes through in this episode. And yeah, this is our episode with Neve Fitzpatrick. How do you feel about being a hero in a graphic novel? Well, the first thing, obviously, is that I, I wouldn't, of course, put myself anywhere in that hero space. I think Tom Doyle's, you know, novel is immense. He did an incredible job with it and um, such a tough thing to do. And there were so many memories for that year, so many stories, but he captured it really well. And I was utterly delighted to be part of it. I'm a psychologist 30 years this year, and I never thought that I would at some point because of my work feature in a novel, in a graphic novel like that. It's just it's about as cool as it gets, I think. And he credits you with uh, with getting the ball rolling in, in his preface. He says, thanks to Neve Fitzpatrick for getting the ball rolling a few years ago and giving me this, some stories and anecdotes from our time involved. Do you remember that moment? I remember us chatting and <laughs> when you get a lot of us who were involved in 96 talking about that year, it's just incredible. It comes back to you just like it was yesterday. And the and the stories just roll off your tongue and the, the memories just sort of roll out. And so I remember a conversation with Tom um, and some of these coming out. And I remember his interest. I could almost hear him scratching and scribbling um, down some of the things I was talking about. So it was lovely to know that that was part of the prompt for him. And I suppose, I mean, it is going to be the key to our conversation today, 96. So how did you get the job? Oh, so I was interviewed and um, Liam wouldn't call it an interview, but absolutely Liam Griffin interviewed me. So he what happened was, was he contacted what was at the time called the National Coaching and Training Centre in Limerick. And they would be involved with the elite athletes uh, in sport at the time. And I suppose I was doing um, 
bits and pieces of work with some of those athletes. And when they he contacted the NCTC looking for some names, my name was one of the names that came up. I think I might have been working with could have been you know the rowers or somebody like that anyway at the time. And Liam phoned me. There was no mobile phones in that day. In that day, so he, he, it was a landline. He phoned me, and he asked me so much. And I knew afterwards that what he was really doing was assessing: Do I think I could work with this girl? Do I think she knows what she's on about? All of those kind of things. And it was an interview. As I said, he probably if you ask him if he was sitting here beside me, you know, he might say, "Oh." I was just chatting, but it but it absolutely was an interview and and I got the job. And then I think because what became clear even from that day one was that as passionate as Liam is about hurling, I am about psychology and each of us were in the same space with our own area of expertise, I suppose, in, in that place. And it just it felt like a fit straight away. That's the best way I can describe it. It just was a connection right from day one, even before we physically met. That phone conversation was a connection. And you were obviously, as you said, you were involved in sport at the time. But were you aware of any other sports psychologist with GAA teams or had you a good knowledge of GAA at the time yourself? No, <laughs> um, uh, I'm laughing when I say that. No, I had never been to, I never been to football match, I never been to a hurling match, never been to Croke Park. Um, I mean, this seems, I'm looking at both of your faces now and this seems ridiculous. How could you <laughs> let this person who wasn't part of this tribe be involved with this squad? But I think he had recognized that the need was in the people side of things. The They had the expertise there around the hurling. They didn't need somebody else in that space. So, um, yeah, Craig Mahoney had worked with in the football with down, if I'm correct, two years beforehand. Um, so that was the only one that I knew of. So it, it was probably in my instance, it was probably the first maybe female psych in that uh, arena and certainly the first psych in the hurling space. So he was quite, Liam was quite ahead of his time in doing this. Um, You know, even at the time, that whole piece around not telling anybody. I mean, now if I go and I work with a squad and I turn up in my tracksuit to Croke Park or one of the grounds around the country, sometimes unknown people would know who I am and they they have a sense that well she's working with them but certainly back then um there wasn't any of that it was very much we keep it quiet we say nothing um and of course that's okay I mean really it's nobody's business at all but 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 there was definitely a sense of something there around you know, this thing is unusual, a psychologist in, it's a bit different. We're not sure what people will think about it. And so it was a huge piece around, it's our business, it's nobody's business. But there was also a huge piece there, I suppose, around just being wary, really, of um, how psychology was perceived in sport at that time. Do you think kind of because of the way many, many athletes and many people on the outside maybe, maybe viewed psychology in a bad light for sport, do you think in a, to an extent, because you were one of the first, you were almost on trial, like for, for the, your profession? 
Yeah, I think what happened, I think there's a couple of things going on. So when you think of psychologists, you know, for a lot of people, they might think automatically then of maybe um, the medical model where there's a problem. You go to see a psychologist if there's a problem. You go to see a doctor if there's a problem. You go to see a physio if there's a problem. There can be that sense really a little bit around the ologies, some of the ologies. And so whereas performance psychology is about an aspect of the game that is a piece of the jigsaw puzzle in the same way as the physical skills are and the technical skills are. And I understood that and Liam understood that and the players were to understand that. But it, it definitely was a test. There was a sense of it, you know, about it being a test to see what would happen and how would it go. And I think we had seen some bits and pieces around not so much sports psychology, but there was a bit with who is the boxer who you'll both know it now when I start to think about it somewhere around that time there was a boxer there was somebody who wasn't a psychologist who had said that he had hypnotized him and that there was who remind me who that is Ben Steve Collins Chris Eubank Ta-da! brilliant and there was whoever that was I can't remember now who that was but I remember there was something that went on around that piece and there was discussion around it and I think it might have been the late late or whatever and there was a bit of a sort of a circus around it that he had been hypnotized or that so that buys into this whole thing that you know if you look at the mental side of your game the psychological side of your game that there's a kind of a mystique about it or something like that and it's really nothing like that whatsoever it's literally about if you've got a player who has got a talent as a hurler and you look at that talent they've got to be able to deliver that talent on the day when it matters they get the physical skills right they get the technical skills right they get the fitness skills right they look at the tactics the one thing that's different on the day is can you deliver that when there's 82,000 people looking at you? Can you deliver that when there's a minute to go on the clock? Can you deliver that when maybe you've had a defeat or not a great game yourself in the game before? And, and that piece is the psychology piece. And there's a brilliant quote from a sports psychologist called Dr. Terry Orlick, who says, an athlete hoping to distinguish themselves in competition without first having systematically mentally trained is like hoping God will come down at half time and turn the game around. And then another psychologist said, but what if God's at another game? So in other words, why would you leave it to chance? Why do you prepare every other aspect of your game and not prepare the psychological, the cognitive, the emotional sides of your game? And so that's really what I know psychology as related to sport to be about and Liam knew it to be about but for sure it, it was on many levels a test to see what would happen when you push this profession maybe into that environment and obviously it went well thankfully <laughs> it did um talking about the whole the hush hush part of it you know not letting the secret out there was one moment where I think that during a game Liam noticed people looking at you or wonder, Liam thought people might be wondering what's her role with the with the with the squad. So he got you to go to be pretend to be a physio and go pretend you're putting strapping on, I think, Larry Murphy's leg. How did you feel about that? Were you just, yeah, you agreed I go do it or were you kind of like, that's not what I'm here for? <laughs> 
No. So so a couple of things there. So where that happened was, I think that was heading more towards it was after the Leinster final and heading more into the latter games. And we were having a presence at training. There would be more people there at training. There'd be press at training. And I suppose from the start, when I would begin to do work with the players in the background, so I'd see players individually, we would do some group work, we do some bits and pieces then even around the field or team sessions with Liam and that. Um, we asked the players, what do you want to do with Neov on game day? And they said straight from the start, we want her there. It will be a reminder for us of the work that we have done. So we want to see her there. So that was fine. So I would turn up in my tracksuit and that. And in the beginning, nobody paid any attention, really. Then people started to look at us more closely after Leinster. And it was actually at a training session uh, one night. And Liam said to me, um, they're wondering who you are. We keep being asked who you are, um, you know, get out there, his actual words were, get out there and run your hands up and down Larry Murphy's <laughs> leg and pretend that you're a physio. Now, we live in a different time now. That was 25 years ago. I was 27 years of age at the time. And we, and we live in a different time. I think people quite correctly in so many ways, they stop, they pause, they think, they, they look at something and see is it right and, and all of that. I didn't even give it another thought. I knew what he meant, which was completely what I agreed with, which is the most important thing is these players. The most important thing is their training, is what we need to do to help these players become ready for their next match, whatever that match is. And that's all that mattered. And ego didn't matter or any of those things didn't matter. As it turned out, years after that i was the psychologist with the irish olympic team for three olympic games and there were my first games was athens in 2004 and one of the first jobs i had with the olympic physiologist was putting all the bath mat bath mats and all the shower curtains up in the apartments in the olympic village you need if you are going to get on in life to be in a place where you will say, I will roll up my sleeves and do whatever has to be done when it has to be done. And any sense of that's not my job or I don't, you know, think that's OK to do. Forget it. You just need to get on with it. So I suppose I probably would have had some of that mindset back in 96 with this with Liam. And I, and I just ran out, <laughs> ran out to Larry and I said, sorry about this, Larry. And I said, just bear with me with this one. <laughs> Go with me, you know. And All right, there, Neve, no problem. <laughs> And off we went. <laughs> and it, was what, it was going to be Larry. Liam did. That was not my choice. <laughs> not that there was a, I love Larry, but it was not my pick as to which player I got. He just told me what to do. Larry might have been the nearest. I don't remember. But what it did was, it. I suppose, if you think of a manager of a squad like that, you know, you have a huge squad of players. You have a backroom team. He had selectors. Um, he has the press. There was, you know, all of the expectations. He's a lot on his plate. I see my job going in as a psychologist with any squad then and since that it's to talk in behind that manager and to support that manager challenge them for sure when I need to do that, but to support them. He didn't need the grief of people wondering who is she 
he just needed to get that swat that away and get that out of the, the 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 equation and this was the quickest way to do it this is what we did as i said would it be done now or would would people say it was okay now of course not on many levels but it's what we did when you arrived first the players had hadn't won anything for wexford in a long long time and they'd gone close a couple of times in the last few years like what kind of a headspace were the players in when you arrived okay so that's the first question i would say i feel uncomfortable with answering in that only in that um i don't speak about anybody i work with in terms of the detail like that it just feels it feels uncomfortable in that so so you know after 96 i was asked you know by liam and the squad to like everybody else contribute to um the book that was written written at the time or to do interviews and and but all of those things would be maybe a sort of a top level a higher level piece about it and so to sit and to stop and to think about I, I you know if we stop and we look at anybody who has had these endeavors made these attempts had these efforts where they've tried given it everything and maybe fallen a little short or fallen a lot short that's what that's usually going to do is is going to impact your confidence your sense of is this possible can we do it it might impact your drive and motivation to keep going with the levels of excellence it can impact your focus because the attention can be more on minding yourself than on sort of doing your job so in that particular situation that's what you would i would expect to see really of anybody in that situation do i feel particularly comfortable at going in specifically with the lads no um were you worried that going in to a, a team that hadn't ever had a psychologist before like it was obviously Liam who Liam who brought you on board it was his idea to bring in a psychologist were you worried at all that some of the players would just be like no i'm not doing this yeah you know from the start when you go in or at least i always feel when you go in with a group that you're going to have some people straight away who can see the need, see the idea for it, are on board. Some who the far end of the scale are, this is ridiculous. What is this? I'm not having hand actor part of it. And then some in the middle who are there to wait and see what happens. So you, so I would, I would have gone in with a sense that that's what was probably what I was going to meet. And I would feel it's part of my job to help them understand what the work is about, what we would be doing. So, so say I, I do remember that first night. I remember exactly where it was. It was in the ferry carriage. And it was downstairs. You go down the stairs and there was the room at the bottom of the stairs. You take a right. I can actually see the room walking in. It was like going into the lion's den. Daniel and the lion's den. That's the best way I can describe it. There's just this sea of faces in front of me. And I knew that it was my job to help them understand what on earth a psychologist was doing in front of them because I knew that there would be a perception in there of that medical model around but hang on a minute what's wrong with us why do they need to get a shrink in here there was going to be some of that thingy so so my job was to go in at the beginning 
around explaining what it is that I do, what it's about, what it's not. It's not, you know, bringing you back to your childhood. It's not, you know, your deepest, darkest fears. It isn't, you know, it's nothing for them to be scared of. But what it was that it was where Sean Collier would do the the fitness work, for example, I was going to do the work in the training way with their mind and their emotions and putting it into those terms, really. Um, and so, yeah, there definitely would have been cynicism and that would have been expected. But it's your job then to go in after that and to and to help them understand what it's about, really. Did any of them ever join a tough session in the middle with Collier say, oh, no, I, I need to talk to Neve for a few minutes? <laughs> No, they missed that trick now, in fairness. That would be a great thing. To, and these were, I mean, what I will say about them is I absolutely, utterly and totally love this group of players. I, it's, it's a funny thing, this part of psychology. So I work in two main areas. So I, I work in mental health, optimum mental health, so around anxiety, depression, stress, confidence, grief, all that piece. And then I work in the optimum performance space and so you when you work with especially with a squad but certainly with anybody in sport but definitely with a squad you are at the training sessions you're in the dressing room with them you're there out in the rain you need to be around you need to be present and you are so and it's a it's a very different space and not a better or worse just a different space than seeing somebody you know, maybe once a week and then they go way off to their own world and you're not involved in their own world with them. There's a there's more of a connection. It's a it's a it's a closer connection within the bounds of still obviously everything being, you know, above board in terms of how you work. So within that confines, I have to say, I just I loved these these guys. They were amazing men because I thought what courage it took for them to have this young one from Dublin. I mean, I was younger than a lot of the players. I was 27. George O'Connor was 34, 35, 36 or something at the time. There was a lot of Liam Dunn was the same age as me. Um, you know, so it was quite courageous, I thought, uh, for them to accept this stranger into their midst and to listen to her and to, you know, open up to that, that bit around how they were feeling about things and, you know, stuff like that. So it was just, yeah. It was incredible. They were it was an absolutely and utterly brilliant group of men. And I, I, you know, I had respect from them for them from the start. And I do now my, you know, we've had very tough times in my family and with bereavement over recent years. And, you know, the hurlers from 1996 have been amazing. They they have stayed in contact. They offer support when my sister died four and a half years ago. Some of them came to her funeral. So it was more than just a job. It's so much more than a job. And I think that holds for everybody in it. It, it was an adventure. What were your specific instructions at the start? Or were you kind of told by Liam, you kind of set your own role here, you do what you think is needed? It was really collaborative with Liam in that he knew that I knew what to do in that space, that psychology space. So we would, if you like, um, I started off seeing players individually. So for me, when, you know, you're working with a squad, that is a squad made up of 
individuals. Those individuals are different ages, different places in life. Um, they've had different hurling careers. They've different worries, fears, all of those kind of things. So I needed to know them individually in order to be able to have um, them individually move towards optimum and therefore as a group move towards optimum. And so I did those individual sessions and from that it became clear what were the type of things that we needed to work on as a group. So, you you know, again, it's like I said earlier, you might be looking at things like confidence, things like focus, things like composure. All of these things were coming up and would come up as expected in individual sessions as really being themes throughout the whole group that are needed in terms of the psychological skills. And so then he knew that I knew how to assess that and also then how to teach that. But then it was really collaborative between us in terms of how we might do that. So, you know, it was it was very heavily invested um, at that time. So I might I was lecturing in psychology in Dublin and I might finish teaching at maybe five o'clock and jump in the car and drive down to Wexford. There was no bypasses or no motorways. So it was a quite a journey. Drive down, um, get changed, out to training, do training, team meeting afterwards, up till stupid o'clock, talking to Liam with strategies and tactics into bed, back up at five o'clock the next morning, drive back to Dublin. And you might do that a couple of times a week. And one of the nights or two of the nights might have been or a Saturday might have been doing individual sessions with the players. And so it was quite invested, heavily invested. And the information that would come out from all that individual and group work would go back into the plan of what was needed. And we'd look at maybe things then like, you know, who was our next opponent and where were the beliefs and perceptions around that opponent in that squad and what might be needed? What were the banana skins? What were the things that were needed maybe to work on in between so that we were meeting that challenge of that particular squad? Um, in the right way, in the right frame of mind. So it was very collaborative rather than a set of instructions. And was that something, um, it was in uh, Set the Heather Blazing or the Heather Blazing, one of the pages is you standing up in front of them with the um, with the flip chart and writing reasons why Wexford will beat Offaly. Is that maybe because perceptions of playing Offaly were this, uh, some, some bad results and... Yeah, and it's funny because again, it's, it's, I mean, it's crazy when you think about it. this is 25 years ago. This is a lifetime ago. And yet I remember when you tell, say that to me there now, I remember that night. My instinct is that that was a Wednesday night, Wednesday, maybe Thursday night, but I think a Wednesday night perhaps. Um, and it was in the Talbot Hotel in town in Wexford. And I remember, I remember going into this room and I just we had done a lot of individual sessions, individual work, but I just knew it was a squad that we just it needed the right mindset it needed the right energy on its own. This exercise would have been nothing, would have been just a gimmick, but it was to really try and pull together and draw together the pieces of work that I would have seen from players individually in their sessions with me. But I needed them all to hear it from each other. So I put up this flip chart. And I just said exactly as you said, Gary, I said reasons why we will beat off And I just wanted to see what would happen. And I looked over, I remember Liam, he was sitting over to my right and I looked over at him and I just did this tiny little head shake. 
And it just basically meant keep your mouth shut because I didn't want him or anybody else. <laughs> we weren't going to be on that field. I needed everybody else to stay quiet. And these players were going to need to speak up because if they weren't going to be able to speak up in the safety of that room amongst us, you know, then how were they going to be able to speak up with their hurling on that field? And so when I said this first, reasons why we'll beat Offaly, and it's this empty <laughs> sheet beside me, and I'm sitting there, standing there with a pen, and there was crickets. And I thought, right now, Fitz, what have you done here? And I just, no, just hold. And that's what the time I think I just gave him a little head shake to say, don't you dare, just stay quiet. And he didn't say anything. And eventually, one player said something, I wrote it down. One player said something, I wrote it down. And these weren't, what was great here was that they weren't telling us things that were, you know, gladiatorial, Mel Gibson, Braveheart type of things. That's, uh, although that's a film that they, they watched a lot and, and <laughs> loved that. And so it they wasn't that. They were getting down to the specifics of the skills that they had as an individual and as a group. So we got very much into the detail of the reasons why we could beat off. And of course, in sports, like we talk about process rather than outcome. So your emphasis is not with an individual or a squad in a sport really typically around the outcome. It's more around the process. And what was wonderful with when you look after the process the outcome looks after itself and what was wonderful with this is they naturally went to the process in their list and um it was incredible the atmosphere in the room at the start when i asked the question was was flat you know if i had to give it a color it would be an almost kind of sick green color you know but it started to change it, it was the I still remember it. it was one of the most incredible experiences I've ever seen the mood changed in that room and if I was to change a color at the end it would be red not for danger but for but for fire because there was just this sense of here was a group had just ignited and Liam Dunn went home that night and told his mother that they had decided that they were beating off and I thought it was just that's it that sums it up and do you think that was a big turning point in the in in the whole journey, or was there already headway made? Was there already a moment where you know things were clicking? Well, certainly, even back before that, on the Kilkenny match, you know, to have in that first game to have taken the Kilkenny scalp, that was a marker set down right there. Um, it, there was something about this squad, this unit this year that it all just came together there's there's a theory in aviation when we look at aviation we look at aviation crashes there's a theory called the swiss cheese theory by a man called james reason and it talks about the holes in the cheese if you get a a block of swiss cheese that has the holes all over it sometimes the holes line up you know and obviously in that instance it's it's for a poor outcome but 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 I've often thought about it in relation to sport. When you have those players with the talent, when you have the manager with the strategy, with the skills, with the vision, with the ambition, with the ability to pull it all together, you have the background room team who are superb. Sean Collier was immense, absolutely immense. He was such a huge part of that. 
you know, everybody, doctor, everybody was just really superb in their role. And you have the system and the structure to pull it all together for these players. It just begins to come right. And there was very much a sense from that Kilkenny match that what we were looking at, there was no complacency, there was no inevitability, there was no arrogance, there was nothing like that. But there was a sense of that the holes were beginning to line up in the cheese, but the way that we needed them to line up. And so I would say, actually, <laughs> that turning point was that kill. For me, psychologically, it was that Kilkenny match right at the start. And you knew Gosh, like there were other times during the year. At one stage, <laughs> Liam took us to the beach in Rosslare and he got this army tent, the hugest army tent I've ever seen in my life since, nor before. And he put the army tent up on the beach and we slept on the beach there for two nights and sort of barbecue and different kind of things or a night and a half, whatever it was anyway. And I remember we went to mass in Rosslare on the morning, on the sort of Sunday morning. But there was this sense when you were doing all of this, that you were part of something. You were part of something that felt different and that felt on the edge of something. So I feel that that switch and that turn around happened right from Kilkenny. Did the role that you signed up for at the start, did that change much? Like, did that did that just end up taking on a life of its own and start evolving as the time went on? Yeah, totally. Because I suppose, you know, I'd come in, as I said, so my background is psychology. I actually wanted to do law. I, I left school planning to be a lawyer and a solicitor, and I missed the points. Worked hard, but wasn't smart enough, missed the points. And I decided I was going to go in to do an arts degree and go around the side door into Black Old Place into legal work. And I had to pick three subjects of my arts degree. And I picked English because I love books and languages and reading and all that stuff. I picked psychology because fascinated with people. And I picked philosophy because somebody told me it was an easy subject number three. And once I get into psychology, I completely, utterly and totally fell in love with it. I had a, a lecture there called Aidan Moore and he died now last year, but he was one of the most amazing lecturers I've ever had. And I just got sort of sucked into that psychology space and really loved the kind of the sort of psychology piece of it. So did psychology, did a master's in clinical psychology and then did a master's in specializing in sports psychology. So when I came to this Wexford gig, if you like, I was coming with that piece of looking at the people, the players as people first and then as players. So what might have started off really as players and me maybe thinking that it was going to be around how do you focus when you're on the pitch? How do you bring your focus back? How do you build your confidence? How do you bounce back from errors? Without question, some of the work evolved and moved and flowed at different times into more that space where we widened it out and looked at them as people, as men, you know, before they were players. And I think it just it 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 took on that view. So it became much a much wider, a much rounder sort of space. So I've had players over the years saying to me that some of the work that we did that year helped them in their life, in other parts of their life and other aspects of their life. I also think because of the age we were so close in age in that there was there's a relatability factor that was there 
and even though I wasn't, you know, I wasn't from Wexford, I wasn't um, sort of part of the area or anything, I felt really, I felt really embraced by them. And I think that having a female in that male environment actually worked out really well. It, there's, it's, there's a balance, it can bring a balance. There was something there maybe about a softening presence sometimes. I can be I'm quite a straight talker and I, you know, I'm not afraid to talk straight and stuff. So I don't pull any punches when things need to be said. But of course, I do bring a different approach to a male approach, understandably, and them to me. And I think that presence in the room often helps. So in the beginning, <laughs> I remember at the start, so we'd be in a team meeting and some player would start speaking up and start talking and they'd start to swear. And in the beginning, it was all that the first couple of swear words come out and they, they'd just look over at me wherever I was in the room and say, sorry, Niamh. And then I knew I was really accepted when they stopped saying sorry, Niamh, because I was part of them. And, and, and it was great. And I, and I just think that helped. And I think that perspective helped. And I think it's that just that little softening is maybe the wrong word. I don't really know what the word is, but just that. I think that female presence in that male dominated space actually worked out well. So that would be another way where I would say I had never considered the gender piece before. I had never thought about, you know, I've had people saying to me, you know, sure, before I took on the Wexford job saying to me, sure, you was a girl, you wouldn't be able to be going into, you know, a, a male dominated sport like that. Um, but it never entered my head that I couldn't. Why, why, why couldn't I? Um, but as it turned out, I think it was one of those ways that the that the role evolved, because I think it actually was one of the things that helped in that situation to have as a presence. Does, does that make sense? No, it does. Absolutely. So, yeah. No, no, it, it does. <laughs> I, I, I just I just like the fact that they stopped saying sorry for cursing. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I took that. I, was... I, I, I was wondering, did you join them with the cursing oh, <laughs> to make I, them feel better about it? Absolutely. In all seriousness, absolutely. I think there's a, there's, a, you know, there's a place for everything. And sometimes you just need a good swear word. And sometimes to be able to, you know, it's not about mimicking people, but it's about helping people understand how to be comfortable in a space. And so sometimes if I need to, you know, swear or whatever i absolutely of course i would do that and my birthday is july july 24th and so i turned 28 right in the middle of this and i remember the players i still have it they gave me this watch this gold watch and it has wexford 1996 um inscribed on the back of it and i remember martin's story giving it to me in, in front of everybody and saying you know at the time we know what we wanted to inscribe on this, but we thought it would be a bit much. And what they wanted to put on it was, you know, All Ireland Champions, nineteen ninety six. Um, but I, but again, you know, it showed where the connection went. That they knew that it wasn't, it wasn't just a job. And so, you know, way back then, that was my first gig in terms of a team job. So I was coming in with them untested myself personally, and then to have it at a place where things were working as they were. And there was that sense from the players of, look, you're really part of this group. It was immense. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that. 
This traffic light system that is spoken about so much, did you devise that? Yeah, because um, the players were talking about, and it became quite a big thing, um, say, when we looked at sort of on obviously down the line with something like an all the all Ireland final. So there was the piece around, you know, you would go out, you were on the pitch, you would parade, you'd meet the president, Mary Robinson at the time, you know, you would parade around and, and, and but that was probably the biggest example of the issue, which is how do I keep my focus? What do I do with my head at that time? And what I wanted to do was to help the players. This is, you know, right back from the start, but really used heavily there in the in the final. I wanted the players to understand that what you do with your focus of attention is you switch it. So it's not about, you know, keeping your mind focused on your job until a time that you need it. You know, it's not about doing that way out from when you need it. It's about understanding that we need to block off our time and be able to switch or block off our focus and be able to switch it on to what's relevant when it's relevant. So that idea that when you're at, you know, your job on a Wednesday afternoon, when you're studying, whatever you're doing, from the point of view of you as the hurler, you're on red in that you're, you don't need to be planning this, rehearsing that, strategizing that you're on red, you're off, you're stopped. You can just, you can let your mind go wherever you want it. When you then head to training, you want to be thinking about when you're leaving the day behind, you want to be thinking about now I'm on amber. So I'm going to start to get ready to train. You're using the signal to your system that we're moving into a different phase of the day now. And it's about switching that focus, getting ready to train. And then once you're togged out and you're running out onto that training field or you're out onto that pitch, you're on green. And it very much denotes that sense that this is now, this is on, this is fully present. And this is the only thing that requires my attentional focus at this time. And as a system, it just worked. It, it just, I got a lot of my ideas driving up and down the road. And um, because as I said, there weren't mobile phones, thank the Lord, because Liam Griffin would have talked to me the whole way up <laughs> and the whole way down. So I had peace at least until I got home. Um, but it, so I did a lot of my thinking then, and there were a lot of ideas came up then. And, and that piece was one that they just got. And I think sometimes in life, people just need something to be able to reference, to understand what's needed of them. And then they go off and do it. And when it came to then the likes of the All-Ireland Final with that piece I've just described and, and walking around, and it became then easy because players knew if they wanted to look in the crowd or to see whoever or to absorb and embrace the atmosphere of that day, well, that was okay. Their job was to be able to move into amber and to move into green so that the focus was fully in the present when that was needed. So that's not a, it's not a standard psychology technique. You just kind of come up with that on the road. Well, well, I, I didn't learn it uh, somewhere. If, if that's what you mean. Yeah, no, I don't know. I, I just knew because I find with people, what we need to do is make things relatable. And and often if you take something out of one environment and you transfer it over into another environment, 
and somebody says, oh, yes, I know what that means over there when I'm on the road and I'm thinking of, you know, amber is get ready to green is go red is stop. I understand that there. Now let me take it back over into my sporting world and apply it. So, yeah, I just I didn't be looking for things like that to make my point. And that one seemed to work well. So have you copyrighted it? Like this should <laughs> be thinking, the, the Neve Fitzpatrick <laughs> traffic light system. <laughs> I'm thinking now 25 years later that uh, perhaps I should have. But <laughs> Maybe you missed a trick. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is an iconic moment, definitely for us Wexford people. The Wexford team walking around the pitch following the RTM boys band, um, staying behind the band for the whole lap around the field while the Limerick team break off and really just looking calm. And like, we've heard that they were told like to take this all in and they really did. Yeah. And then the match starts and Limerick actually started a little bit stronger, but it, it was kind of their, their adrenaline probably ran out. Like they went, they legged it from the, from the parade all pumped and did start better, but then probably could didn't have enough to keep going on. Is that something? Is, is there something in that? Is does the traffic light system work in that you're not just going to use a spike of adrenaline and then wear off? You're going to keep a steady green light. You're going to keep a steady pace for the whole game. The the the, the analogy of the traffic light is more to understand the switch in focus of attention. So and and how we need to switch and how it's okay to switch and to not feel like you must stay on this green kind of space all the time. So that's more the piece around that. I think the bit around when you're in the game situation and actually in there, in the present, on the field, a huge part of that is the composure piece. It's been able to understand that, you know, it won't always go our way. So, so, so when those moments happen where sometimes in different situations, a game will get away from you or, you know, decision goes against you or whatever, it's the moment of composure to take a breath. We would say to them, because I can still hear it now, Liam Griffin, deep breath, lads, deep breath, lads. He said that I think he was probably tattooed on the inside of his eyelids because it's uh, all he he seemed to see. Um, But they heard that again and again and again. And there's an expression that says to be careful how you speak to your children, because what you say to them becomes the internal voice in their head. And we can all relate to that in some ways. We can sometimes talk to ourselves the way maybe our parents or our teachers did. But that worked. We used that really with the players. We wanted Liam's voice or my voice or their voice at their best to be in their heads in that moment, reminding them to deep breath, next ball, all of those kind of things. So they had key words that would help them you know, remain focused or bring focus back at situations. And it's more about that. I think when you're in the game, it's about a composure piece and it's about bringing focus back when it wanders. And I think what I think what was amazing with this group of players is, you know, it doesn't really matter who was the best that year. What matters is here was a group of players who believed without question that they were the best prepared 
that they could be. And they were able to lean on that preparation. They knew their strategies were great. They knew the tactics. They knew the, that Liam and the guys had it on the line. They knew the mental prep was there. They knew the physical fitness with Sean Collier was immense. So they were able to rely on themselves and know that whatever happens here will be okay. We've got a plan. Can that in itself be a barrier? Because if you know that you've done everything you can and you still fall short, is, is there something like, then you might you feel that you weren't good enough? And is that why some people mightn't try their best out of fear of failure that their best isn't good enough? So I think there's two things there. So in the middle, while you're in the performance and in that game, that's when you're fully present, you're relying on yourself, you're trusting yourself, you're trusting your system. If after the game is over, you haven't crossed the line, there absolutely is some comfort from knowing we could not have done it more. And I've been in that dressing room in Crow Park with a squad where we haven't got over the line and you just come away thinking we could do nothing more. There is some comfort in that space, but there also is exactly what you say, a sense of we gave it everything and we still weren't good enough. But isn't that part of life of realizing that sometimes we do give it everything and sometimes we just aren't good enough. And part of life is understanding that and accepting that and saying that doesn't mean that we are not good enough as people. It means that on this day, the way things fell, as it was, we did not bring the better game. We did not get over that line. So, so I think the trick there is while you're in the moment, you've got to rely on your systems. You've got to trust yourself. You've got to back yourself. You've got to throw everything into the mix. And you do have to accept that afterwards, if you don't get over that line, it will sting that, you know, that particular match that I'm thinking of now, it hurts me now it still hurts me now and that's a few years ago and I think it always will but I don't think that necessarily has to be a problem I would oh my word I would so rather give it everything give it absolutely everything and not make it live with not making it than hold something back and you know have that wondering afterwards to think if only i did this if only yes. i did that it's a bit like the i know it's slightly topical now but um it's a bit like the garth brooks piece you know uh, that it's it's that that song i think it's the dance you know i could have missed the pain something he said something about um that I didn't know how it would all go, how it all would end, how it, how it would all go. And, and he says something about, I could have missed the pain, but then I'd have had to miss the dance. And I think part of the thing in sport is learning to love the dance, is, is of course wanting, we all want to win. Of course we want to win, <laughs> we want to be the best. But it is also about saying that journey as a person, if you're a player, if you're a backroom team member, if you're a manager, that journey as a person of giving everything, developing, growing, getting better together, becoming more cohesive, daring to dream, daring to go after your dream, that's living. That's taking life by the scruff of the neck and it's living it. Isn't that okay? 
in my book it is famously on the way up to Crow Park I think for the Leinster final Liam Griffin pulled the team over to talk to him in the field and they walked they walked out of Wexford as a psychologist would you have been completely against this doing him doing this so let me tell you a story about that <laughs> so what happened was I was driving back to Dublin that week or it might have been the week before certainly in the week or two leading up to that and I as I said there was no motorways and there was no bypasses so I came through um into Arklow and there's that sign that says at the time it was on the side of the road and it said you are now entering the garden of Wicklow and something just was might have been six o'clock in the morning half six in the morning and something just sparked off in my head and I got back to Dublin and I rang Liam and I said one of the ways we want to approach this match is for their mindset to be as well as all the other bits about their job doing their job in the process as well as all that we want their mindset to be that when they go back into their county they go back in as Leinster champions that's all I said that is all I said <laughs> and Liam turned it into this and so that bit around as a psychologist, would you have been, you know, against it or that? Uh, my my answer to this is it's about the context. There were hours and hours and hours of solid, decent, consistent psychological work done individually and collectively with them. If that had not been done, what Liam did would have been a gimmick and I wouldn't have been for it. But when you back it up with the consistency of the physical work, the tactical work, the coaching work, the psychological work, the medical work, the nutritional work, then it becomes something that just can be one of those things that lines up the holes in the, in the cheese in the right way. From my minimal knowledge of whatever psychology I'd nearly think just that's ridiculous to be doing that well well and it but it is on it if you take it on its own it is but a bit like the a bit like the piece in the room with reasons why we will beat awfully sometimes what you want to do is just pull it all together a little bit and just have a look at it he, he had told me bits and pieces about that I did not know what he was doing fully of what he was doing. He, he did tell me some um all right but i but i couldn't have known the scope of what he was going to do but it's also about trusting as i said that process that we had put in place and without any of that it would have been an utter you know a pure gimmick but what it did instead was it just pulled all of that together and i also think you have to be the right person to do that so there's not very many Liam Griffins in the world. And if ever there is a man who is going to pull off something like that, it's Liam Griffin. He's just, I mean, look, he's, he's my friend now. He's still, we're, we're still pals. We talk, you know, I talked to him a couple of weeks ago and stuff. We'd be, we'd be great pals. Um, and he would have, he'd pull that off beautifully. You talked about the collaboration with Liam in deciding how you're going to do things and with collaboration comes disagreements. Were, were there any standout disagreements that 
that you had or that you had with the other management team? Honestly, I don't remember. Um, I really don't remember. I think for me, a lot of that stuff is around starting with the end in mind and thinking about the intent. What is our intent? What is our aim? So because we were always agreed on the intent and the aim, we were looking for a squad of players to arrive match day in the appropriate state, psychological and physiological state to be able to deliver their optimum. And everything we did was moved towards that. And everything we did was aligned with that. So I think when you started that perspective, even if somebody says something and you think, oh, I'm not sure that's the way I would do it. Once you know that they're aligned with the same thing and wanting the same goal, it's okay. But I would say far from disagreeing, opposite act, it was actually, and there's nothing wrong with disagreeing. There'd be plenty of managers I would work with and we would disagree on things, but you work them out. But what's weird was I could leave Dublin, drive down, head straight out onto the field. Remember, no mobile phones, so there was no chatting. And I might do something with the players at a team meeting that Liam had covered with them in the 10 minutes before the play session started at training. And the players would say to us, you know, you two are at it again, you know, you're and I'd say, what are you talking about? (laughs) And they said, well, sure, he talked about X, Y and Z. But there were some times that literally happened where we hadn't connected, but we were so in sync that we were just aligned and the, the same sort of psychological plan kind of came to us. And and I do remember, I do remember at one point after the All-Ireland final, I'm nearly sure it was Adrian Fenlon said to, we were at a, a, a table one day in the, in one of the hotels and <laughs> Liam said something like, tell me this, how come you listened to her? He said, there was so much stuff that I said to you over different times. <laughs> and she would come in and say, hey, but you listen to her. And now he said, it, I mean, listen, we're fans of one another. So he said it in a nice way. And I'm nearly sure it was Fenno said, ah, but she's the professional. That's why we listen to her. Now, of course, he wouldn't li- they wouldn't have listened to me quite rightly about strategy and tactics and stuff, because that's not my space. And there's something there about understanding that really Liam Griffin didn't really need a psychologist. He did so much of this stuff enmeshed in the work he did with the players. But actually, you needed the psychologist to come in and support what he was doing and give credence to what he was doing and to give the science behind what he was doing and to give the strategies what he was doing and maybe to explain or expand or develop some practical ways to support what he was doing. And it's in doing that that it all worked. Does that make sense? No, yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I said, yeah, it absolutely does. (laughs) (laughs) Been working in the field, I suppose, for a long, long time. How do you feel? Obviously, probably back then, the players knew very little about sports psychology. But I'd imagine when you go into a team now, the players know a bit. How, in your experience, has it changed? I think it's changed hugely. I think when it started, certainly when I would have started. So I trained in the UK and I trained in the States um, after here. And certainly the focus then was very much on 
the player, the sports person. Um, I see it now quite rightly how we have so evolved to looking at the person first and in its understanding about the piece around, you know, you need to look at your life. You need to look at being okay in the other areas of your life and minding your mental health and minding your relationships and your workspace. And you, you can't, you don't come to a player, you don't come to a pitch as an island, you come as a person who has a life. And so the, the I think a great evolution is in that understanding more so now that we are dealing with that complete person first. Probably I was lucky I think in that I came to sports psych from a psychology background and a clinical psych background. So that piece was already within my repertoire, probably. Um, but I think overall, as a profession, to understand that now that it's about you as a person of which your sport is part, we must look at the rest of that person. And then we can go in and go after the sports piece or simultaneously even. I think that's important. But certainly, you know, athletes are brilliant. They do. They'll get on to Google and they want to know about this. And what do you think about that? And I've certainly had I've had athletes come up to me, say, at a, a training camp before an Olympic Games. And one I remember particularly said to me, so listen, this might have been two, three weeks out of from games. We were at a training camp and he said, there's nothing wrong. I'm feeling great. Well, you must have a kit bag of strategies there that can help me. Show me what you got. And I thought it was so cool. It was brilliant. He was basically like a sponge and he was saying, hit me up with some stuff and I'm feeling good. and I'm in a good space, but I'm like, I, I want to know more. And so there was that curiosity and that interest in it. And it, it was it. It was brilliant. It was really good. So I love to see that interest in players and the questioning and the asking and all that kind of stuff. I think it's brilliant. When you think about incentives, I think you spoke about it. It might have been a paper interview uh, for when you were the sports psychologist for one of the Olympic teams that, you know, trying to find the incentive for the players, especially when money is not won in both the Olympics and for um, for GAA. Is, is it hard to find in, in, uh, the incentive? Is it hard to make the players realise? Sometimes are there players that the incentive is just not enough? My experience has been that an incentive outside of yourself is often a barrier and a block and an obstacle. I, I, I think when when a just because we're talking about hurlers so, so if i say players when a player has in themselves this belief in their ability this passion for their game this kind of tribal connection with their club and with their county there's nothing better than that because when you add in that piece then around the cohesion piece with the squad you're working with and the, and the, and they develop and come together and each person can see i see what he's doing i see how he's training i see the efforts he's going to although i know he's been on the road as a sales rep today and he's tired coming back and i still see him look at him he's fully here he's fully present when you start to put all of those bits together 
the internal incentive, the personal incentive from a player's perspective of I'm in the middle of something that could bring me to a place where I realize my dreams of being the best. Maybe it's that all star. Maybe it's that all Ireland. Um, I, I that is for me one of the most powerful incentives. And I would personally for players, I, I would choose that over any um, monetary incentive any time, you know, and I'll say this. I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but I can't see a problem saying it. So I'm going to say it. Um, so when I took on the Wexford gig, like I said, it was my first squad gig. I did that for travel expenses. I wasn't paid for that. I because I did it. I needed to. I needed to. Um, I suppose I was coming in untried and untested, and I needed to gain that experience. I needed to cut my teeth. I needed to, you know, develop my skill set. And I knew I could. And Liam obviously knew I could. And so, yeah, so I didn't go in there looking for fees for that job. I that was something that I did for that for that travel piece. So the 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 incentive there absolutely was not the paycheck. It was just that piece of getting life and living it you know, because you grab it by the scruff of your neck and of its neck and you have the, you know, the sort of guts to just go for it. There is nothing I think that would be that. And I will never forget that day with in the final. I mean, all those matches were amazing, but, but that day in the final sitting in the dugout, because that's where the players want to be sitting in the dugout and looking down and seeing the purple and gold in hill 16 and the flags and the players marching with their heads held high i just you can pay me for that experience you couldn't there'd be no money if you said to me here's x amount of money but you won't have that experience keep your money literally getting goosebumps (laughs) but it was uh, and again think of it though but that's my point is that one of the things that we said to these players is look what we do now in the summer of 1996 will keep you warm at night on those cold November days like this one on which we're recording now. It will keep you warm then because you will say I stood up and I did what life asked of me then. You know, I I was a a team player. I went the extra. I pushed past my fears and my worries. I did my mental training work and did all the boring stuff so that I could be ready to be composed on match day. You will say when you are in your 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s in those days, I did what was asked and that will that will keep you warm. And, And here we are 25 years later. And that is true. That does happen. So I don't think I, I think the incentive is a, is a personal internal drive. So how much how much experience did you have before you got involved with Wexford? I had worked with. So when I finished, so the degree in psychology, master's clinical psych, master in sports psych, I was in London at the time with the sports psych at the end of the sports psych master's and that was probably around i'm nearly sure that was 1991 yes because it would have been 30 years this year so it was 1991 and that's when i started seeing clients and i was working there with 
some of the equivalent of the National Coaching and Training Centre here in Ireland. They were over in the UK. So there would be squads there and working with people from that. I was working with individual athletes. Um, and so I did bits and pieces of that work. And then I eventually came back to Ireland somewhere probably around, I want to say maybe around 1994-ish ballpark, maybe into 95, came back here. And it was only individual athletes I was working with. And I had done some, I think, as I said, with the rowers, some of the elite squads down in the National Coaching and Training Centre. But there was no squad work. There was nothing big like that. I am I would have been quite low profile, quiet in the space, not known really much at all. But I just loved what I did, loved, loved from the get go, absolutely loved it and lived it, I would say. And there was something about it just shows you how we were our own best advocates, because there was something about the work that I had done with the rowers or, you know, any of those kind of sort of athletes who were on the edges of the Olympic piece at that time. And um, there was something about that work had obviously brought me to the attention of whoever Liam went looking for when he was looking for recommendations. Um, and I think he just recognized some of that stuff in me. He didn't need me to have done, you know, X, Y and Z. But, you know, when you put it that way, Ben, he took some punt on me because I was very much untried and untested. Um, it's kind of scary now when you think about it. Well, I'd say he knew he knew who he was talking to. Well, yeah, but but it was, it's really interesting when you say that, because when you think of it this way, in some ways now, when I look at it, sure, I didn't really know who I was. I, I knew, I, I will say this, I got a wonderful grounding in psychology in UCD, really, really top class. The education there was superb. And then over in the UK doing the sports side piece in the States, the sports side piece, I actually shadowed one of the Olympic psychologists in London. I specifically picked my degree to do which we had an internship program, a mentorship program. And I got a whole year shadowing this guy who was at the elite level of sport in the UK. So I had seen, I think, from the best. I had been in an environment where he was dealing with elite athletes and I was with him in squads. So I probably felt really comfortable, even though I had not been front and center stage delivering a lot of that stuff on my own. Maybe that's what Liam picked up on. But it is quite interesting because yeah, there, there wasn't there wasn't a, a a trail there that was an obvious one, but it just happened to be a fit. I remember Joe hearing once before about how Joe Schmidt said that um, better people make better players. And I think if you're I think if you live your life as a person where you, you know, you care about others, you have consideration for others um, you know, you don't have to be perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm far from perfect. That's a whole other podcast. Um, but mm. you I think if you live your life with integrity, if you're interested in excellence, if you roll up your sleeves and you do the work, if you ask stuff of yourself, I think that comes across. And I think that Liam, you know, as I said, he had the hurling expertise. He didn't need that. I think maybe there were some things in there that he recognized and he knew that he could work alongside and it just, it worked. What did you find were the biggest challenges from your main work before then had been with individuals 
what were your biggest challenges then moving moving to a team? Oh, oh where do I start? It's the bigness mm. of it. So when you're in the squad situation, you have all the different characters, the different personality types. You have, you know, the people with different situations. You know, some people, some players, say, for instance, would have been married at the time. I can't remember if any of them were actually, some of them were dads. Yes, yeah, some of them were dads at the time, I think, but they were. But, um, you know, I think they're in different stages of their life. They're different kind of ages. And there's all of these sort of things going on. Some have had different experiences with Liam as a manager. There's so many dynamics going on individually, but then you add in the group dynamic. How, what happens when you put all these people who are so different in their own lives together? And one of the things I did, I had seen this you know, the American coach, John Wooden, and um, he had written some book on a book on teams or contributed to a book on teams. And I had seen this thing that I just thought, again, like the traffic light thing that I was sort of thinking up on the road. I think this thing encapsulated something we wanted to say really well. So I borrowed his. So what it was, was he on a big flip chart, I drew just a big arrow but not, it was an arrow that, you know, was a three-dimensional arrow. And that arrow represented where this Wexford squad wanted to go that year. What was going to be the goals for the squad for the year? But then inside that arrow, you draw hundreds of little arrows and they all need to be facing the same way. So what happens within a squad is you might all want the end goal which is that we are victorious at each game, that we perform, that we develop, that we win our All-Ireland or our All-Stars or whatever. But you, in order to do that, you need to make sure that all those internal arrows go the same way, that it's not that one player or one selector thinks this is how we go about it. And some others think, no, that's how we go about it. It's aligning those internal arrows so that everybody thinks, would you know what now, if I was manager of this squad, I'd do it differently, but I'm not. I'm a player. I'll get on board and I'll come with this, you know, and that's the challenge with the, with the squad stuff. And I think you have to be the right balance of listening, understanding, but also at some point there needs to be a call made. And sometimes you need to say to a player, if you were a golfer <laughs> in an individual sport, you could lash on and do this. We must look at the truth here, which is that you are a team player in a team sport. Now, what are you going to do about that? Let's have that conversation to see you there. Is it more important for you to be right? Or is it more important for you to, to have the voice? Or is it more important for you instead to talk in around this and to come on board? And what influence will that make to other players when you took on board, come on around this and took on board and we're all together? So sometimes it's those conversations you're having. It's not really about what he's doing on the pitch. It's about his mindset, about being part of a team and maybe sometimes having to work around things that he doesn't agree with. It's as a psychologist, oh my word, that stuff is so cool. It's the stuff that probably keeps me awake at night doing squad stuff because you're, you're, the job is so huge to try and help all these people be who they need to be individually, but also to come together and gel and click and be cohesive to really finish that job. 
how does that work when like when you're dealing with groups i know you get your time with them individually but the fact that one size doesn't fit all the fact that people uh, like being you know hard with some people or you know giving another person you know a pat on the back when they need it but when you're in a group situation how do you, how do you deal with those dynamics well you're actually part of what you're doing is helping the group understand exactly that piece that you've just said so it's so what we often do in life is we think that you know how i am is how everybody is and and so part of the education piece is helping people understand that no it's not how you are is how you are and that's fine but how somebody else is is absolutely fine for them too how do we need to work as a unit in order to be able to marry both our positions on something or both our likes or both our you know requirements for the good of the overall team so 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 the answer to that question is you know how do you deal with those differences you help everybody within the squad understand that difference piece and you know sometimes to be frank sometimes you're i'm i'm a referee that's what you are um sometimes you're a mediator sometimes you're an educator but what you're really trying to do often if you think for example of um think of a round table and there's like six or six chairs at the table each of those people at the table are looking they're sitting in the same room but they are looking at the room from a different perspective. And sometimes what you're trying to do in that squad situation is you're trying to help players and management and backroom team get up from the seat that they're sitting on and walk around that table and take another chair and now stop and look at the room you're in and see it from his perspective. The guy that's just got up off your chair. And, and you're you're doing some of that stuff sometimes and, and, and people are saying, you know, all right, OK, I see now what it is. And there can be a softening and an understanding and then a meeting. That's the kind of work you're doing. I mean, it's re- I have to say it's some of my favorite work because it is so hard and so big. But when you get it right, there's nothing like it. It's the most one of the most rewarding things and standing and, and I've. I would see the work I do as a, as a privilege. It's just an utter privilege to do this. And I've had different situations in life, in sport especially, and especially in GAA. So in that football or hurling space, where you're in a room or you're on a camp, a training camp, or you're in a dressing room with the squad. And honestly, you sort of don't need sometimes to say anything. You're all just looking at one another and you just know, you just know that everybody's on the the same page, doing the work on board. It is, there's something immensely magical about it. That sounds such a fluffy word to use, but, but it is kind of magical because I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't agree with myself. I have arguments with myself in my head. So then when you get a panel and if you think of a panel you can have maybe up to sometimes i've been in panels where there could be like 40 to 50 people involved and when you get that alignment with that it is just an immense feeling and talking about panels of maybe 40 people 
does speak like your job speaking to maybe substitutes or panel members that don't get game time is your is what you're saying to them different if would they be coming to you saying I don't know what more I can do and like you're not picking the team but you need to tell them that to trust the system yeah I think you know so for starters what's really important for me from the start is that absolutely every player counts every person who's involved in this counts so you know sometimes you might go in somewhere and there might be a you know a little talk sometimes by a manager saying we'll we'll get you to see these players no we'll just stop right there now (laughs) we need to see everybody that's you're either in or you're out you know so so i think it's understanding that inclusion piece um about that everybody counts and everybody is a part of this and you know you will see some situations where you know somebody who's not going to play on match day and perhaps knows they're not going to play on match day has been the player to push a player who is going to play on match day to his absolute best and limits at that training session or in those weeks beforehand and his contribution has been that and the selflessness of that is immense so that's why i think what comes into that piece that you've just described is culture so what's the culture of this squad what's the the feeling and the atmosphere and the values that we imbibe within the squad and how are they seen across and how are they seen through so so that piece around culture is also something that's part of your work in the sports psych space and that person those people who are substitutes or who who don't start or who don't make the match day squad you know it's about ensuring doing the work to ensure to help it be so that no matter what your place you absolutely feel it not know it in your head but feel it in your heart that you are valued and you are part of this and there's a huge piece of work to be done on that one um but it's 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 vital it's a vital bit of work so it can be tough but you've got to go in and after that you can't have you know one set of players that are in air quotes important and others who are less than all in or all out did you ever have anything to do on match day or or more specifically half time of match day so the match day piece for me was um around i used to do a i mean obviously i would always be around in the dressing room you're kind of watching players you know maybe just you know the players really well so seeing their baseline going around having little word bits of chats reminding them of little bits and pieces that maybe i'd remember we'd have done in our individual sessions or that liam might say to a particular player or watching composure with one and you know different things like that and so but the other thing that i would do is we would go to the hotel on the morning of the match to be you know sort of food and all of that and i would usually give a sort of a snapshot quick team talk piece of thing then at that time and it would be again in around that bit of pulling everything together setting the scene um sort of striking the right balance and the right chord in terms of the mindset just trying to help players get into what we call the ideal performance state their place which was the right place for them to to sort of play um and so i would do that bit 
I kind of find in a dressing room, it can be quite a noisy space um, in that. And when I say that, I mean, in some dressing rooms, there's a lot of voices. So what I tend to do was I might talk to players individually, but if I've got stuff to say, I tend to do it through the manager um, and to to say to them, you know, remind the manager, listen, this would be a good idea to say this here, or what do you think about this? Or remember that little bit, we haven't said that. Um, and so that you have that one voice, but it's a cohesive voice in that space. It's not that I never would say anything in a dressing room, but I think again, it's that overall space of having it the right place for those players. So when they hit that field, they hit it right, not overloaded. Would you have any feelings of disappointment towards that Wexford team not having achieved another All-Ireland? Or is it like... They got not Ireland, no disappointment there whatsoever. <laughs> no, I feel that for, you know, any squad who goes out at the start of a season and, you know, remembering with players and again, going back to this piece about the person first. Mm. So a player might have a job where, you know, maybe they're self-employed, maybe they have a, a company you know, who obviously they pay them, so they ask things of them. And so there's demands on them from that perspective. They can be demands on them from a home perspective. There can be financial study. You know, there's loads of things going on in these players' lives. And what they do is they organize their lives to allow themselves to be present, to do the training, to get the work done, to improve and grow and develop themselves as people and as players. And so none of those people go out with the intent to not get over the line that year. I would would always feel for people who set out on an endeavor and fall short on that one, because it, it, it the danger can be as human beings that, you know, we fail. So therefore we are failures. Whereas, of course, that's not what the case is. We we fail to get over the line, but we're still okay as people. That's where you want them to be mentally with that space. So, yeah, absolutely, my heart would go out to them. And, and you know, I would have a lot of friends in Wexford. There are certain counties where I just feel a bit like I'm coming home when I'm in them. Wexford is one. Mayo, obviously, is another one, but, but Wexford is one. And so, so for my pals in Wexford, absolutely, I... I feel for them because those days I remember coming on the bus. So I left on all Ireland final day. There had been rumblings again about because Liam Griffin had said Liam Dunn had said something, mentioned my name. So there been rumblings about who who was the psychologist. And we just I just said, like, we're not it's about these players. That's what matters. So I left the Burlington Hotel. I rang my mother after the banquet and I said, Mum, come and get me, will you? And she ran in, got me, and I jumped in the car with her, headed home. By the time we get home, Liam McGiffin called me and said, Where are you? And I said, he said, get on this bus now. We're we're heading down to Wexford. And I said, No, look, we don't know what the press are going to say. The focus needs to be on the players. Uh, you know. And he said, You get on that bus. And I said, What are you going to do? Sack me? <laughs> I remember that. So I wasn't on that bus at the end, but I was on the bus after the Leinster final coming down, I remember the bus turning around, coming in up the main street in Gory. Mother of God, I will never, I will never forget the scenes. I will just never forget the scenes. It was just incredible. 
but you there were people who were crying there were old men who were crying there were just it was such a sea of emotion as well as a sea of color and knowing that that that's what you do in sport that that you have the power and the capacity in sport to help people feel to 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 be proud of their county to belong to something to follow something to you know have this journey of this highs and lows and ups and downs it's the most incredible thing so would i want that again for you know on my pals in wexford hell yes there's there's already a graphic novel so when the inevitable movie comes out who is going to play Lee Fitzpatrick <laughs> oh you're so funny yeah so you'll have to answer that one I don't know what the answer is I think Saoirse Ronan might be do a careful. good job <gasps> would you stop it you're so funny <laughs> yeah look I think the whole thing about when we look at Claire and we look at Wexford and we look at that bit of you know somebody coming in and upsetting the apple cart and and daring to do something great there's there's a story in that there's you know there's something that's really powerful in life terms around that and i think it's important message for everybody that you know you can be what's seen as one of the minnows in the game and not one of the giants in the game and you can come in and get the job done and if ever there is you know a, um, a movie made about it well that would be utterly brilliant but the graphic novel is fantastic for it now is. is there anything we didn't cover i think i probably the only thing i would like to say is really thanks to the people of wexford thanks to liam for taking a punt on me on something that thanks to ben's question i realize now was a bigger punt than the one i thought he took um <laughs> and we need more people like that in life who are prepared to take it by the scruff of the neck and have a go at things um, and to the players who embraced what was it's commonplace now but it was such an unusual thing at the time and as I said the first female really in that role in that space you know it's been one of my favorite experiences in life my most precious ex experience in life one of and I'm really grateful for it so just really to say thanks to all involved with that and been a pleasure and on behalf of the people of wexford thank you i mean <laughs> all, all the players the ones that we've talked to on this podcast and liam i mean you can't describe how high regard they hold you in and i suppose oh. just from what you were saying earlier about uh about the swiss cheese and about things falling into place um just the fact that you barely missed out your points on becoming a lawyer and thinking that that's all, all these things and that that kind of stood out to me when you said you wanted to be a lawyer but you just missed the points because if yeah. you had got them then you wouldn't have been with Wexford as a sports psychologist no. in 96. yeah so, um, and weirdly even on that one i had gone i think it was maybe in 95 there was a post as a lecture psychology lecture sports site lecture in um the university of limerick and i got down to the last two and i didn't get that post and had i got that post when liam came looking for me i think the drive from limerick to Wexford would have been too much and I wouldn't have taken it, whereas the drive from Dublin to Wexford was doable. So there's two things that could absolutely have been obstacles to me. I might have been in the psychology field in the first place, <laughs> or if I did do what I did, 
I might have been in another role and mightn't have taken that gig. And I do think sometimes things line up in that way and they just are are the right are the right sort of piece and fit for it. But I um look, maybe the gratitude goes both ways for me and with the Wexford people and, and the team and the squad, but um they have a very special place in my heart and will be there until the day I take my last breath. I didn't mean any negativity now in that question. Okay, Ben, I'm teasing you. I think it was brilliant, though. It was a great point to make, really, that there was no history. There was no trail. There was no anything. And um, yeah, no, I think it's I think it's cool. It was a great question. Before I thought of it, that maybe it was your first job after college. I was thinking. No, but but it was it was my first um, squad job for sure. You know, and when you think about that now, somebody going in, you know, I, I'm often asked to mentor younger psychologists coming up where they might go to do some work. And, you know, maybe a lot of them will ask me, how do you get the confidence to go and do some of the things that you do? And, and what happens is, is you have to start small. You do little bits and pieces. But then there comes a point where you just have to jump in. You just have to jump in and you have to trust that you're going to swim. And you have to sometimes learn how to swim as you're swimming. So I think, you know, I think it all just came about nicely and, and worked well. And I think we were all really lucky because I do think when I think of experiences, you couldn't have written some of that thing that we've talked about here today. You couldn't have written about if you if you'd have taken one or two of those ingredients in that whole mix out of the equation, take Sean Collier out of the equation, it's a whole different squad. Take Liam out, it's a whole different squad. Take some of those players, like look at what some of those players did on some of those days. You know, I think of Tom Dempsey in the awfully match or, you know, I some did. of those. Yeah, magic. It was just immense what some of them did. And they all stepped up at different times and different places. You know, Billy Burns, Super Soap, you know, Adrian Reliable. Like there's so much stuff going on there. I shouldn't even start mentioning players because I'm <laughs> going to have to mention them all. I'm covering my eyes because I'm thinking, oh, damn it. <laughs> I love them all and I respect them all. And I think, look, it was a magic thing to be involved with. And I don't know that life is short because for some people life is long. But I do know life is precious. And when you get the chance to live some of those moments and memories that those of us involved in 1996 have lived, well, I think you can count yourself fortunate in life. Is is your book still available? Yeah, so my book um, was published last year, 2020, um, by Gale Books. It's called Tell Me the Truth About Loss. And, and I wrote it because I suppose, so some might know my story, my sister, Dara Fitzpatrick was the one of the four crew who died when the Irish Coast Guard helicopter rescue 116 crashed off the coast of Mayo on the 14th of March 2017. And I had literally gone to bed on the 13th of March and I had four siblings and I woke up at six in the morning to a phone call that one was missing. And about six hours later, we were told that Dara's body had been recovered from the water and she left behind a child he was two and a half at the time and myself and my two sisters became his guardians and so our life changed with 
Dara gone and our life changed with this new role as guardian. It just everything it was like a bomb going off in, in our lives and it has been it has been utterly horrific. And I think what happened was grief as a psychologist and grief as a sister have been two very different things. So what I imagined grief would be is not what it has been. And so part of the writing of the book is the understanding that if I find grief bewildering and confusing and all of these things, do other people find it too? And appears they do. I also wrote it because when I when I began to feel the grief for Dara, I recognized the feelings and I understood I had issues. We had had issues. I'd been married at the time. We had issues with infertility. And I realized that the ability, you know, the inability to have children, the grief there, the sense of loss there, I had felt grief at the time, but I never named it as grief because nobody had died. We just weren't able to have children. And so I wrote about those kind of losses because sometimes losses go unrecognized, unacknowledged and unsupported. And I think that's there's are sort of the reasons I wrote the book and also the piece around if I'm a psychologist and I'm helping other people with their emotional world. And I have this thing going on in my world that pretty much everybody knows about. Most people know about. I was the agony aunt on Today FM when Dara died and I had about six or seven weeks off. And when I went back to work with Neil Delamere, I couldn't just go straight back in and start picking up problems we needed to address it and talk about well as neil said you help other people with their emotions can you tell us what life has been like emotionally for you in the last six or seven weeks since dara died and so there was something there about needing to be authentic as a psychologist and to not be dealing with something that's so huge but to never mention it that just didn't feel right to me and for those reasons i wrote the book and i still get um i get emails every day i get messages on twitter every day from people saying my sibling died and reading your book helps me understand or my child died or my partner died and you know i've struggled with x y and z and reading your book helps me understand that i'm normal that i'm not doing it wrong or that i'm not not coping and so yeah it's been a difficult book to write, but it's a book that's helping a lot of people. I even had somebody today on Twitter send me a photo of three copies of the book saying that it was one was for her and two were gifts to people she knows who are grieving at the moment. And I think when you do something like that and you know that sharing your own story can help other people learn to be more okay in their own story, it becomes something that's worth doing so yeah, so I'm, it was tough, but I'm really glad that I did it. Well, Neve, that was brilliant. So thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Neve. Class. You're welcome. Um, thank you for any- having me. Damien Henry is the best at what he did to ever play with. Unquestionably was the best he ever was. My God, he was so a magician. I'm the youngest of the 15, uh, nine brothers and five sisters. They just stuck you in the goal then? Yeah, well, uh, a so-called goal, uh, two tar barrels. So 
Damien Fitzhenry was the best goalkeeper I ever played, but you know what I'd say, say that. Damien Fitzhenry is the best goalkeeper I've ever seen. So I'd probably, like, I'd probably say Damien. We hope you enjoyed our podcast with Neve. Thanks everyone for listening. Unfortunately, Shane Tompkins couldn't make it. He told you why Gary as well, did he? No, I'm just assuming that he's more of a football man now after winning the county final. No, no, yeah. He told me, and this is a quote, he said, I don't believe in that voodoo stuff. So, Ooh. what can you do? Anyway, thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back soon with another podcast. Thanks also to our sponsor, the Enniscorti Credit Union. Take care. Most importantly, I'd like to thank you, the people of Wexford, who stuck with us through